2: Well, let's answer the question. You know, do we have a right to judge other people? And of course, those folks, those moralists, we're going to learn in Scripture that they do not have a right to judge other people. And for those of you that are believers in here, while we're talking primarily to those that are unsaved in this context, that they ought not to judge others. They are ju- here. It is. They are just as guilty as those who suppressed God's truth. Those moralists are just as guilty. We're going to learn that. I want us to maybe take away from that as a believer in Christ that we would be very careful that we would not be judgmental of other people, especially because of our own issues. Now, some of you are going to be thinking, all right, is it ever right to judge? Is it wrong to judge? What about judging? Well, just for a s- To make it as simple as I can biblically, I'm going to reduce it to two kinds of judging for a moment. There's one kind of judging that we might use the word analyze versus the word criticize. I can analyze someone or something or what they're doing and I can say that is wise or that is foolish. You know, the entire book of Proverbs is nothing but a book of judgment. You could almost call it the judgment of Proverbs because it's going to analyze humans and human nature and what they think, say, and do. And so it's a book, but it's more under the guise of, it's a discerning book. It's an analyzation book. It's not a criticism book or condemnation book. It's a book for us to understand, again, who is wise, who is foolish, who is um, diligent, and who is lazy, and it goes through a whole list of them. So for us to look at people, and we see they operate in a certain way, what they might think as it comes out, what they say and what they do, We might look at them and analyze them and say, that is a person who is acting foolishly. But this is not talking about someone who will analyze someone and sense where they're coming from and then with the heart of love and service to come alongside them to point them to Christ in the Word. This is more the person who condemns them by saying, look at how bad you are, you low-life person, and with it we attach, I'm so glad I'm not like you. It's kind of like reminding me of the story of The one who is the publican and the sinner who is just crying unto the Lord and the Pharisee looked at him and said, I'm so glad I'm not like that man over there. Oftentimes when I'm called upon to do funerals, I'll remind people that it might be good to look back into the life of the person that has passed that's been a good person and we say a lot of nice things about them and maybe grab one of their character traits and see if we might want to add that to our system. Have we ever met someone that we looked at them and said, I wish I was like them? Have we met anyone else that we looked at them and said, I'm so glad I'm not like that person? Well, we have to be careful that we don't move from analyzing to criticizing, from discerning to condemning, and that's what this passage is talking about. So we're not to condemn someone, but it's not inappropriate from time to time to analyze them and to see where they are. The Bible does give that to us as a warning, but also a desire to help them. Very much concerned that we too, lest we think we've now attained something, we then fall. But I'd like to give you some from this passage, what I've extrapolated, what I might call four characteristics of someone who might be self-righteous. In a book that was written by Chuck Swindoll, he says that he believes that that's probably one of the greatest sins that all mankind, including Christians, might even deal with, which would be self-righteousness. I'd like to say that sometimes Christians move from self-righteousness to spiritual pride. Where it's not just being righteous. They have a spiritual pride about them. Which, if you'll be back next week. We're going to go to the third group of people. That God is going to essentially condemn the hardest group of people to reach for Christ, which would be the religionists. They're more like that, the spiritual pride people. But let's get back to these four, and let's read, begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 2 here of the book of Romans. And here's what you read as we started out. It says this, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge... Practice the same things. Now this verse is jam-packed with important information. When you see the word therefore, that's telling you that there's a reason it's therefore and it's connected to other material that is shared with these Roman believers earlier on in the chapter. And what it's basically saying is you have no excuse, just like those rejectionists had no excuse. Verse 20 says they are without excuse. God revealed himself to them. It says, these moralists have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. And why is that? Now watch very carefully, it's very simple. I could almost give you this and we could go home. It goes like this. The moment that we now judge someone else, we've set ourselves up to be God. we set up ourselves to be judge, jury, executioner. We set ourselves up by thinking that we are right. And that then becomes a personification of a five-letter word called what? P-R-I, finish it. D-E, pride. So all of a sudden, what we see in other people, their lifestyle that's away from God, we have our lifestyle that is away from God as well. Now, in context, I think this is referring more to a Jewish audience, as verse 17 will refer to that, and we'll get into that next week. But it really could bleed over into anyone that would have this attitude. So number one, he justifies or excuses himself while judging other people. He excuses himself... While he judges or accuses other people. Now, if you think about that, he justifies himself while he's now condemning other people. I thought about that a long time and I thought, does that really happen and how does it happen? And so I began to go through a catalog of conversations or statements that I've heard from people in my, my life. And when I say that, I want to make, make you understand. It's none of you said what I'm about to read to you. None of you have said this to me lately. I can't think of any of you on these statements, but I know the Holy Spirit will know if we've made these before. So is it possible that you and I have justified ourselves in something while we're accusing someone else? Here are some statements. The reason is, do we really do this? We do it. And here's how we do it. We label what they do differently than what we label what we do. So here's the term: we relabel what's going on, and that causes us to justify ourselves while we'll condemn others. For example, I heard we don't gossip, we just share a concern i'm not critical i'm discerning i'm not lazy, or I'm not lazy i 'm mellow or I'm just laid back i'm not a negative person I'm a realistic person i'm not unreliable i'm just flexible. If we don't relabel it. The next thing we do is we forget about our own sin. We don't pause long enough to really let the Spirit of God reveal those little foxes in our mind and our spirit and our heart that will spoil the vine and all of a sudden we're committing our own sin and they'll look like this. You lose your temper. I have righteous anger. You're a jerk. I'm just having a bad day. You have a critical spirit. I bluntly tell the truth. You curse and swear. I just let off steam. You're pushy. I'm just intensely goal-oriented. You're greedy. I'm simply taking care of business. You're a hypochondriac, but I'm really sick. I haven't heard this one lately, but I think it's out there. You stink. I merely have an earthy aroma. I said that in just a little bit, just to let you know how oftentimes we forget about our own sin because similar to the relabeling part about it, we minimize what we do and we maximize the sin that they do, or we minimize the good that they do, and we maximize the, uh, the good that we do. Let's look at the second one of how we might be able to see a characteristic of a moralistic person. This person evaluates others by a wrong standard. Look at verse 2. I love this about Paul. He says, And we know, kind of bringing in the audience into him as well, we know, and it's not kind of a guesstimate, it's a real known thing by fact, that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Actually, the phrase, the judgment of God is according to truth, falls upon those who practice such things. Which means, listen very carefully, That when God chooses to judge, he judges it based on truth. And we couldn't add to that the dynamic of accuracy. And it would be the truth of scripture and the written word of God or the written living God in scripture. So he has that right to judge when we really don't have that right to judge. But we often evaluate others just by a wrong standard. Let me see if this will help some of you understand it better because this is tied to other verses. For example, we think we've done such a good job because we're not like those low-life heathen people. They've broken all the commandments. They've cheated on their wife. They've stolen money. Look at that person. He's a murderer even. Look what he's done as murder. And so we look at all of them and we think how bad they are, but then we forget that in James chapter 2, verse 10 says, those are the Ten Commandments out there, If we break only one of those commandments, then it's as if we've broken all of them with God. So the truth establishes that they're a sinner, and moralistic people are sinners as well. Here's another one, Jesus speaking again. He says, sure, adultery and fornication would be wrong. But he says, but if you look upon a woman to lust after her, it's as if you committed the act. So while it is true that others might have gone full-blown into their wrong living lifestyle... We have done it in our mental capacity by doing it and therefore we are all still guilty in need of a Savior. One more. It's also found in James and it's referring to the fact that we might not have committed this act of sin in our thought, talk or walk but if we didn't do what was right that too becomes a sin. So again what he's really doing is building a very important case and listen to this. The important case is this. We have all sinned whether we are a heathen who's rejected God or we're a moralist who's done a lot of good deeds, we are all sinners, we are all guilty, therefore we all need Christ. And even though we are all under the wrath of God now and a future wrath later on when we have to give an account, we'll talk about that in a moment, I want you to hear what we sung about this morning, which was so beautifully shared this morning. We are bathed underneath God's grace and His love so that no matter where we are in this indictment, that God says that his grace is greater than our sin and that we still can have access to heaven. But it's only through Jesus Christ in him being the one who suffered all the penalty for our sin for us. Let's go to number three to see it again in another way. What's another characteristic of a moralistic person who maybe has some of these kinds of problems in their life? And that is um, he evaluates others by wrong standards. He thinks that judging others makes us feel better. Um, It says, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, that's a pretty simple principle, but maybe it'll help you like this. Let me ask you a question, those of you that are driving today. Have you been driving, perhaps, in somewhat of a residential area, and the speed limit says 35 miles an hour, but it's a four-lane highway, there's a meridian it's at a particular time during the day, the traffic is really moving, so you kind of pump it up to 40, you kind of know, they'll give me a little grace at 40, and you know the traffic is still moving, so you kind of let it drift between 40 and 45, although the speed limit says 35, and while you're doing that, and you're in your right lane, and you're doing everything just right, you're not talking on the phone, you're not texting, you're just driving a little over the speed limit, and someone goes by you, maybe on one of those going splats, right on by you, And he's going about 50 miles an hour, 55. Have you ever leaned over to the person next to you, maybe your mate, and said, look at that guy go. They ought to give that guy a ticket. Has that ever happened to any of you? Don't raise your hand. What we were doing just at that moment was we were saying, look at how bad this person was. And as a moralist, we were forgetting that if you went 35-point smidgen miles an hour over the speed limit, that one little smidgen, we were just as guilty as the whole thing. He might have gone faster, he might have had more consequences should he hit a tree or hopefully not another human being. But whatever it might have been, underneath the eyes of God, we still have that same sin. So moralistic people, no matter how good we might think we are, we still miss the mark of God's perfection. And you can read that in Revelation 21-27. Let's go to the fourth characteristic and that is that he misunderstands God's blessing and his Another uh, song that was sung today, and I really appreciate our worship team coming together and bringing songs that will help us to think about this message in a musical fashion. Look at the verse it says here. Speaking again by Paul to moralistic people who are counting on their moralism that will help them to have a relationship with God. And he says... Or do you, meaning or, are you number one, are you number two, are you number three, are you the number four verse, which implies that you could be one but not the other, or could imply that you could be a combination, could imply, are you all of these? It doesn't matter. Do you think lightly of the riches? And underline that in your Bible, not of his kindness, but I want you to think of the incredible riches. Think about a cake that has extra icing on it. The riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience. And for some of you that like a little bit more, let me encourage you to get out your concordance in a good study Bible and look at those three words. It's like first base, second base, third base, all in a baseball game. They're all a little different, but they're all a part of God's tremendous grace that He gives to us. And He says, do you think lightly of this? In some translations, it might even have the word despise in there. Do you despise these things? Another way to translate that would be, here it is, do you think Less of these three. He goes a little bit further. He then goes on to say, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. If you do not have this verse marked in your Bible, may I encourage you to do that right now? Sometimes we as Christians when we present Christ or we present Christianity or we allow people to think that God is so mean, He is so angry and He's so full of wrath that He can't wait to just unleash His fury upon mankind. I want you to know that, yes, there is sin. And why would He have that wrath? Is because of what sin caused Christ to go through for us on the cross and how sin separates us from Him. Sin hinders us from seeing the reality of a great God, and that wrath of God comes down upon that sin. Now, pause for a moment. I do want you to see, though, that it's His richness of His kindness, of His forbearance, of His patience. And it's all that goodness, that kindness, that brings about repentance. You know, I know that sometimes when um, you have to um, discipline your children whether you give them a timeout or maybe sometimes you have to do a little corporal punishment with a lot of grace and a lot of tears, a lot of carefulness. And that might bring a little bit of a a broken, not spirit, but a broken will when there is that real intense rebellion. But I've also seen some parents who knew just how to display this extra grace, grace heaped upon grace, Something that the person felt, I don't deserve this. I shouldn't get this. It will never come to me. And all of a sudden, God says, you know what? I'm going to give you a do-over. In sports, we'd say, I'm going to give you a buy on this. You get some extra time on this. How it could bring about a complete change in their life. I want you to know that it can really happen to people. And I mentioned that some of you right now, you're experiencing God's greatness. Now, why is it in this portion of Scripture when it says don't judge? All right, I'm a moralist right now. And I'm thinking, okay, God's going to get him. God's going to get that horrible heathen over there. God's going to get that rejecter of God. I can't wait. And when it happens, it's like, see, I knew it was going to happen. I knew he was going to get it. We get all excited over that. And yet this verse is saying, wait a second, why are you putting down God's grace and His mercy and forgiveness, and in this case, kindness, at this moment, when right now that should be bringing you to Christ because you could get a far worse because you're just as guilty as they are, but God is choosing to give you kindness right now. And why don't you respond? Why do you think less of that? So what I'd like you to do for just a moment, in your own mind, that you would begin to think about how good God has been to you. And why don't you write down a kindness list And see all the ways that God has displayed something extra special on you. From an answer to prayer, a protection in an automobile accident that could have been a lot worse, a promotion on your job, when you know in your heart for the first time now the pride is gone and you know you don't deserve it and God still in His richness of His kindness blessed you. Now what should that do? Well obviously we want to say thank you Lord, I really appreciate that. But why would we want to waste God's richness and grace at that moment? Why don't we take that and allow it to cause a deeper work of repentance in us? And let me define repentance for a moment. The actual word just means a change of mind. Now, people want to pack it full of a lot of other things. A change of life and all of that. That's a different metamorphosis. This is a metanoia. Noia, we get our word neuro, like brain, like a neurosurgeon. So it's a change of mind. Now, can a change of mind bring about a change of behavior? Yes, it can. It should. We'd like it to be that way. But don't push this word further than it already is. It's just a change of mind. However, now we have to say, if it's a change of mind, it means a change of thinking. Not behavior yet. It's a change of thinking. So when God is pouring out His richness of His kindness on you, and you now not just take it as an academic, orthodox truth, it becomes a reality of an experience of that truth in your life, then you might be thinking, what do I need to change my mind about? Maybe the first thing I need to change my mind about is who Christ is. I kind of know up here that He's God, but now I have to realize that He is my Savior. He is the one who went to the cross for me. Watch this now, watch this. The greatest display of His kindness to me was when Jesus died on the cross for me. Another thing I can change my mind about When I experience God's kindness says Lord, as I see this, it reminds me again that I am not worthy of this. I am not a moralist. I might have done some good deeds society-wise, but even then I did it because it made me look good. It was pride in my life. So I was driven for still me-centeredness. And now, Lord, I'm changing my mind. I don't deserve this, Lord. I am a sinner. And now all of a sudden, I see my sin and my unworthiness to what God's grace is. And all of a sudden, it brings me to this sense of, I love you, Lord, Matthew chapter 20. I love you now with all of my heart, all of my soul, and all of my mind. Now, what does that do? It changes my mind now that I want to trust you for everything in my life. That if you can be so large and in charge and give me grace on something I don't deserve... This is now something I will not think less of. I will not despise. I will not think lightly of. I'm going to use it to repent or to change my thinking about who you are. Now, when that happens, often there's going to be then a byproduct of a change of life because now all of a sudden we're living our life as a response to grace. Now, think about that for a moment as we tie it to Scripture. Listen very carefully. I am saved by grace without works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Titus chapter 2 says that I am disciplined by grace and I am taught by grace. Now watch carefully, listen now. In Titus 2 it says I'm taught three things about grace. I'm taught that it's the grace of God that brought me salvation. I am taught to deny ungodliness in my life present. Past is that I'm saved by grace. Present, to deny ungodliness. So now all of a sudden I want to live a godly life but it doesn't stop there. In the context it says in Titus 2, it also teaches me to look forward to the blessed hope of the full appearing of Christ coming back in my life. All of that is grace. So I don't want to think lightly of all of these dynamics of the goodness of God in my life. And it should bring about a repentance. So even moralists, as good as it might be, watch this carefully, do not think the goodness that you have going on in your life or going for you in this life is really a result of because I'm so good that I'm such a great person. All right, so those are the four characteristics. But what would be some of the results of being this judgmental that we think that, uh, that we can excuse ourselves while judging others and we evaluate others by wrong standards? We think uh, that other, judging others makes us feel better when it really doesn't and it shouldn't. And we misunderstand God's blessing. Well, look at verse 5, if you will. It says, but because of your stubbornness, that's the moralist person, because of your stubbornness, and unrepentant heart, and to me it seems like those two words ought to go together if you look at it, stubbornness. An unrepentant heart means a non-changing heart. And if you're a non-changing heart, that means you're a stubborn person. So it might mean that you're so stubborn that you don't let your heart or mind think. It's an unrepentant mind. And so what happens then as a result of someone who sits there in your moralism, in your self-righteousness, what happens then, you are storing up for yourself wrath. That's interesting. Storing up. That means it keeps building and building and building and building in the day of wrath. And actually, there's no uh, article in front of the word the day of wrath. It is a day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So if you would look up here for a moment. I don't mean to be this technical... But I don't know where else you're going to get this on a regular basis in church or Sunday school, maybe in ours here, but listen carefully. When it talks about storing up, it means that it is coming. God is giving you this grace right now, but you are still, we are still living under this, this cloud of self-righteousness and moralism. We have not changed. We're stubborn, unrepentant heart. So it's building, it's building, it's building. It's just not here yet, but it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. This last um, Friday, I was asked to perform a wedding at Magic Island. It was absolutely beautiful. I'm telling you, as you look out over Magic Island, you could have faced in the direction of Diamond Head or you could have looked down to to, uh, Ala Moana, and the sky was so blue and yet everybody was saying, hurricanes are coming, hurricanes are coming. I looked on my, my app on my phone and it says, we're at level one, it's coming, it's coming. Beautiful picture. Yesterday was a full day for me. Had to do a burial in Mililani, and I had to do another beach wedding of two wonderful believers at Sherwood's. Those of you who know where Sherwood Forest is. Now, you remember what yesterday was like? It was gray. And all I could think about is how wet I'm going to get up in Mililani in an outdoor burial, have to jump in the car and go all the way to Sherwood's to do an outdoor wedding. God was so good. I looked at the map as we're now on the beach with this bride who was in a stunning white Gown. The guy was drop-dead handsome. He got the whole family that came.
1: You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible.